Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. This is the final episode of the Tally Room Podcast before this weekend's Australian federal election, so we'll be wrapping up the campaign, looking forward to election night, and discussing what long-term trends might be continuing or reversing at this election. My first guest today is Jill Shepard. Jill is a lecturer in politics at the Australian National University, and her research focuses on public opinion and political behaviour in Australia. Hello, Jill. Hey, Ben. And my second guest is Peter Brent. Peter is an election watcher and writer for Inside Story. Hello, Peter. Hi, Ben. Hi, Jill. So uh, we're recording this episode on Monday morning. As of Sunday morning, we don't have the figures yet as of this morning, almost 2 million pre-poll votes have already been cast and over 1 million postal votes have already been returned with a lot more early votes expected this week. In terms of polls, we had a news poll on Friday night that had Labor on 54% to PP. That was stable from the last news poll. We've also had an Ipsos poll the previous weekend that had Labor on 57%, which is probably the strongest we've seen in quite a long time. But on the other hand, a central poll has been showing the race to be a little bit closer, although it's been a little while since we've had one. And right now, we're expecting all the last polls we're going to get will all be coming out between Wednesday and Friday. So we're in a bit of a pre-election lull in polling now. But you'd have to say overall, Labor is in a strong position. Um, Jill, what will you be watching this week? Uh, Well, I mean, I think we've got to sort through the sort of uh, immediate aftermath of this uh, housing policy announcement from the coalition's uh, campaign launch this weekend. Uh, this idea of being able to draw down on super to pay for your first home is not a new one. Uh, Tim Wilson particularly has been banging on about it for uh, for these last few years. And we know that it's one of these sort of strange things in the, the Liberal Party that uh, it's, you know, this sort of grows up like mushrooms in the dark, right? Uh, no one really wants to talk about it or bring it out into the light. But there is love for some of these sorts of policies. The fact that dropped this on the table right at the end of the campaign and talking about those pre-poll and postal vote figures, Ben, like so many people have made up their mind by now. So why you drop this now uh, and what you expect to happen is, is all kind of up in the air. This is, I mean, look, if nothing else, it's fun. It's strange, but it's fun. Uh, it's going to be a, a pretty torrid week, I reckon, for the campaigns generally. Jill's point is good that um, I think you said 3 million pre-poll, so that's about 20% or so of expected voters, a bit less, plus plus a lot of people have uh, popped their vote in the mail. We don't know how many. Um, so it, it is um, you know, one week before election day, quote unquote, it is uh, quite late to, to drop a policy announcement. In terms of what I'm doing this week, I will just wait for those final polls. I mean, what's interesting, as we know, is that the Primary votes are low for both parties. They're in the 30s. That makes two-party preferred harder to estimate. Now, the lower the major party primary vote, the harder to estimate. So um, I'll be looking at all that in later in the week. It does also have implications as well. Like if Labor really is on 53 or 54% 2PP, they're probably going to win a pretty comfortable majority, but that may come in off a very low vote, you know, a vote, a vote that is about the same as what got them a hung parliament last time is what the last news poll had, 38%, maybe even less than that, who knows. That is an interesting challenge for politics. I mean, probably we'll, if, if that is really the case, there'll be a few more crossbenchers or whatever, but the disconnect growing between um, the actual number of people who vote for the major parties and how many seats they win. 
um, is getting a bit worse. But maybe that's a thing to discuss once we actually have results in. Last election, Labor was not doing anywhere near as well in the polls as they are now, but there was an expectation Labor would win. They did lead in most of the final polls. Should we feel comfortable that Labor's going to win? Like, there's clearly the favourite, but like, how much of a chance do you think there is that the coalition could pull this out? I think there's still a chance. Look, if we move on from 2019 and our sort of behavioural response is to trust the polls now, then we're kind of foolish, right? Like, how do we end up here? But on the other hand, this is there's two two differences here. One is that the pollsters are um, are much more like self-critical than they were in 2019. The whole industry has opened up in a way that I really didn't expect. And the other one that I think is more important that we don't talk about as much is that the polls are bouncing around a bit more. We're not seeing what was obvious hurting. You know, we can talk about how we didn't have, uh, we don't have the evidence to show that there was hurting uh, in 2019, but I'll, I'll be damned if there wasn't, right, at least unconsciously on the part of the uh, the polling companies. And so you're not seeing polling driving a narrative. You know, you're not seeing uh a kind of, you know, Labor's won this media narrative a week out. And I think that's really important, right? So it has opened up the the whole tenor of the debate going in. Normally, if if we hadn't experienced a 2019 election, at this point, the media narrative might have been Labor's got this in the bag. And I wonder if that would normally lead to a bit of moderating, like a little bit of a swing back in the polls. But if if people still think the election is too close to call, maybe that doesn't happen. That's a really interesting point because I've been really cautious about any big swing towards Labor because I think a lot of voters, you know, and again, no great empirical evidence for this, more of a gut feel. And, and based on what we know about survey respondents generally, right, I think a lot of survey respondents tell us sincerely between elections that they are swinging voters but then they come home again, right? At you know, on election day or in the week or two up to leading up to the election. And so I think there's still a fair chance of that. Um, and I don't know how much of that we can isolate from reporting on the polls anyway. So if I'm, for instance, uh, if I'm telling pollsters that I am a swinging voter between elections, but really at heart I'm a liberal voter, and then I see liberal you know, the Liberal Party losing in the polls, you know, one poll after another, does that make me more likely to, you know, like fly my flag or less? I I don't know. And I kind of like that we don't know. There's still some mystery going into Saturday. I don't think Labor will get 54% two-party preferred, but I'm confident that they will win. It's interesting what you were saying about expectations. While it's glib to compare uh, elections, you know, say this election is like election X that happened a while ago. This is similar to Paul Keating in 1993, pulling that rabbit out of the hat, surprising everyone, winning with an increased majority. And the next time the vibe was never write Keating off. I think Keating might just pull this off. You know, he's best with his back against the wall, etc., etc. Okay, the polls say how it's going to win. You know, I, I think it'll be too close to call, blah, blah, blah. The polls were right. The, the expectation, you know, there was, there was in terms of betting markets and general expectations, Keating's, you know, magic, phenomenal political skills were factored into the equation. This time, of course, we've got a problem with the, the poll fail last time. So there is that. But I'm, I think that the, the pollsters have probably made up for most of that. And even if the polls are off by the same amount as last time, which was 3%, then, uh, you know, we're looking at a 51% Labor 
two-party preferred, which possibly would be a hung parliament, but a likely Labour-forming government. Last election, even if the polls hadn't been wrong, I think there still would have been a bit of a, wow, Morrison's pulled it off, the um, element happening, right? It would have been less of a surprise, maybe a bit less dramatic. But yeah, I do think there's a bit there that, you know, everyone believed in Keating having the magic touch right up until the election day. And then they were like, oh, it turns out magic isn't real. You know, <laughs> turns out political reality exists. Um, and I do think there's a bit of that with Morrison now that he's had a bunch of tricks in his bag, but he's kind of used them all up. And people are waiting for them to work. I mean, some silly articles like Phil Curry saying, well, objectively, Albanese's had a terrible campaign, but it's, he's doing well. I'm like, well, maybe it's not an objective judgment then. I've, I've never seen a campaign where we've tried so hard to buy into the, the daily horse race, right? Like from day one, I thought we'd sort of, I thought we'd started to move um, beyond this, but I, apparently not. I, or maybe I'm just looking for it too, right? Maybe it's confirmation bias because we're all a bit more kind of um, aware of it, a bit more cognizant of it. But uh, in terms of, yeah, just a day-to-day, who won the day? Who's winning this campaign? Who's the best campaigner? I mean, we've been obsessed with it in a way that I don't remember. Yeah, I mean, it it throws up um, the question, you know, what makes a good campaign? The media and politics watchers in particular are obsessed with momentum and the vibe and, you know, Albanese had a bad day, you know, is that going to translate into the polls and so on? But the the silliest so-called gaffe that was made a big fuss of was his, his inability to list the six points of his NDIS plan. That's just ridiculous, as, as if uh, somebody in Voterland is going to care about that. I, I thought the uh, wage rise thing had the potential to sort of blow up in his face because, uh, you know, the doubts about labour in the economy, but he seems to have weathered that. But really, what is good campaigning? We don't really know what is good campaigning. You know, um, all we can do is and watch the result and then declare that uh, the winner ran the best campaign, which is not necessarily true, of course. In terms of believing things, we'll talk a little bit more a bit later about what the long-term trends have been. We've seen some evidence that seats that are not the typical swingy seat are maybe in play. And some of that is about independents running where they weren't before. Um, But even for Labor, you know, there's now polls today saying actually maybe the independent is not the challenger in North Sydney, it's actually Labor. Peter, I've seen some tweets from you that suggest a certain amount of uh, disbelief of those figures because in the long run, things do shift sometimes, seats seats change, you know, but we've seen polls that say the, you know, very high numbers of people in Kuyong or Goldstein, not only are they not voting for the Liberal, but they actually are comfortable with an independent who might side with Labor in government. Do you think it's just possible that politics and those kinds of seats have shifted that much to be, to be there or do you think that stretches belief? Well, um, let's see, North Sydney and Higgins does seem to stretch belief, but but if the Labor win is big, if the swing to Labor is 5% or so, then it's the, the range of that swing is going to be anywhere from a small swing to the coalition in, in individual seats to a to double-digit swings. And if they, they pop up in in Higgins and so on, then, then Labor wins. I, I suppose, I mean, you've got two things. You've got long-term trends uh, where safe Liberal seats are no longer as quite as safe as they were and traditional Labor seats no longer as safe as they were. That, that's a long-term trend going over decades. If, if Labor has a big win, then that can make it spill over um, into the most unexpected places like that. I'm still sceptical and I think we're, we're looking at uh, that... that 
MRP poll by YouGov, which is a magnificent thing and really interesting, and, and that's made us all talk about individual seats. But but that was taken over quite a quite a number of weeks, I think, and so it's not necessarily up to date. Those safe, leafy Liberal seats, where Labor did quite well last time, swing wise, do they swing again? I think there's two things happening at the same time here. One is that I'm pretty sus that there is a wholesale movement from Liberal voters to, um, you know, to the Zoe Daniels or the Allegra Spenders because that's where these candidates have to pick up votes from. And I'm just not convinced that, ha- that that will happen in sufficient numbers to get them over the line. But saying that, the second thing that's happening is that we're normalising this. If if a golden rule of campaigning is don't talk about your candidate, you know, Tim Wilson has not shut up about Zoe Daniel. So in a big way, in a big serious way, we're in uncharted territory. You know, this isn't your conventional sort of independent candidate pops up, oh, well, let's see how, you know, this guy goes. This is a sort of different parameters for a local election that I'm used to in Australia. And so, look, if nothing else, is going to be interesting. But I sort of, yeah, they're the two thoughts I'm holding in my head at this point about whether you can, whether we will actually see this swing on in these sort of teal seats. One uh, interesting bit of analysis that I actually put up on my website on Sunday, I built a bit of a metric that looked at over the last few elections, I had a redistribution adjusted data, looked at which seats have just had the most swings like one way or the other way, just average size of swings. And so then I grabbed like average of the four elections before 2019 and then I thought I'll compare that to the swing in 2019. Maybe there's a trend. Does it predict anything? 2019, if you just looked at total size of swing, it, it predicted nothing. But if you looked at which way the swing went, there was a really strong trend. The seats where the coalition picked up ground last time, because overall it was basically a standstill election, right? Like Labor gained some, coalition gained some, it largely washed out. The seats where the coalition gained ground are the seats that have traditionally swung a lot. And the seats where Labor gained ground are the seats that traditionally, and I say traditionally, I'm talking about like 2007 to 2016 here, don't swing very much. So I don't know exactly what that means, but it does suggest last election, the places where Labor was picking up support are not the typical places where that have the most swing voters, the kinds of places that tend to move the most. We could see a reversal of that trend this time, but it does feel like there's a bit of evidence that maybe that was the beginning of an ongoing trend of those kinds of voters not liking Morrison and moving, whether they move to Labor or move to an independent, but there's something happening that maybe is is upending our previous expectations about what was possible. This is the next big thing we really don't know, right? And we talk about this all the time, like, oh, if the swing's on, you know, here's where it'll be on. But but most of that is hand-wavy kind of uh, folk wisdom, right? I've seen you guys talk about this on Twitter, how hard it is to actually, like, calculate this, to calculate the sort of tipping point of different swings, uh, which seats do fall and which don't, and, and are they, you know, is that kind of linear? Because my sense would be it's probably not when we get time to do this. Like this is something that we, I think it's pretty incumbent on us to do is to look at, yeah, who swings in under different conditions. I, I think the 2019 swings can't be, um, I mean, there, there is no um, neutral position from which one can measure swings, but 2019 can't be mentioned without acknowledging that a lot of that was a reversal of the 2016 swings. And 2016 was a very weird election. I mean, you had the opposition winning Lindsay, which 
I don't want to be too fanatical about these bellwether seats, but that was pretty weird. And the the swings then were strong, you know, across more inner Western Sydney and other traditional Labor seats. They were strong to Labor, and they were in Liberal seats. They were to the the government. So 2019 was a correction of that plus a bit more. But that's sort of the problem, right? Is there's always something that's contributing that's a little bit off piece, you know, or a little bit unique. So it's either um, historically unpopular leaders like Bill Shorten, or it's coming off, you know, a, a weird result like 2016. There's always something up, and that's that's good, right? It's what keeps us all in a job. If if these things were predictable, like we just replace us with an algorithm and we'd have to go find a real job. But I. Yeah, I mean, to the extent that this helps to predict uh, 2022, I, I'm a bit stuck. Except there are long-term trends. I mean, we can expect those trends that have been going for decades, since at least the 1980s. If you look at, um, I mean, this is uh, Sydney-centric, I'm, I'm being, because they, that presents the clearest sort of archetype of these things. Those leafy North Shore Liberal seats were much safer Liberal back then than they are now, and Labor seats in Western Sydney... Some of them have gone liberal. And, of course, demographic, different sorts of people move in and out. That, that makes a big difference. But there's obviously not the old class uh, cleavages that there were, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago. And so it's all diluting and flattening out and, and types of people that could be reliably dependent upon to vote for Party X are no longer as reliable. And, in fact, as we know now, they're, they're not even just switching to the other side. One of the most interesting trends at the 2019 election was a swing to Labor in areas with relatively high levels of education and income, and a swing to the Coalition in areas with lower levels of education and income. One of the features of this campaign has been Coalition weakness in traditional heartlands in the inner cities, the exact electorates where they lost ground in 2019. They are in danger to a number of independents, but Labor is also showing interest in seats like North Sydney. Meanwhile, Scott Morrison has been pursuing a strategy to poach more socially conservative out-of-suburban voters from Labor to offset inner-city losses. In the short term, political trends tend to be cyclical, with the same kinds of seats swinging back and forth. Over longer time periods, we do see shifts. Peter, do you think we are in the midst of a long-term realignment in how these different demographics vote? Uh, yes, and I, I think we, we've already, you know, I've already talked about this a bit. That basically, it's, it's less. Uh, party allegiance is much weaker than it used to be, and so th- this is reflected in pretty much you know, most demographics that you can look at, in, including geographic ones. Liberal areas are not as strongly liberal. Labor areas is not as strongly labor. People on high incomes are not as reliably liberal voters, and people on low incomes not as reliably lab- labor voters. And so it's all it's there's a kind of flattening out of. Uh, you know, partisan groups. But in terms of individual, you know, we always have to be careful with individual uh, swings at elections, you know, because they can correct the next time. Yeah, look, I mean, I agree with Peter more broadly and and he's mentioned class a couple of times and that's, you know, that sort of looms large, right? Uh, And the parties haven't necessarily kept up with that. I think they try, but they're not really built to be agile and, you know, particularly responsive as institutions. Uh, I think, though, we do underestimate uh, voter loyalty in, in Australia. And, and as voters, we put up with a hell of a lot from our parties. Um, we, you know, we can excuse them all manner of sins and keep voting for them. And 
we sort of haven't seen those chickens come home to roost yet. You know, we haven't really seen uh, the kind of backlash against the parties that we may have expected. Now, whether that starts now, you know, if we see primary votes down in the 30s for both major parties, then that's something, you know, we're probably not going to get there. But the worst polls have, have suggested that for um, for the majors this year. I think it's coming though, and I just don't see a plan from the the parties to to try to address it. I think if they knew what to do, they <laughs> they do it. But it, it, as, as you say, it is something that's happening across the democratic world. At the last election, the the major parties total was seventy five percent, and it looks like it's going to be a little bit less this time. So I mean, I think they are they are both losing support. We have we have preferential voting, which sort of mops up all the spillage and brings it back to the parties and that masks a lot of the problems in Australia. So they're just going to keep declining and and I suppose a reason that they don't know what to do is because there's nothing they can do because their original raison d'etre is a long past. They now exist because of institutional inertia and uh, they're there because they're there but one day I guess they won't be. It's interesting what you said earlier, Peter, about it flattening, which I it's not really the way I'd thought of it. I thought of it a little bit about different electorates, different um, demographics kind of swapping places. But, of course, the swapping is not such a dramatic effect that, you know, the Liberals won't be competitive on the northern beaches or anything, except where Zali Stegel's running, but in terms of Labor and Liberal contests, certainly. So maybe we are just seeing a little bit more of, like, places just voting similar to each other. You know, like the the things that distinguish people not being so ge- geographically concentrated. One bit of analysis that I did on Sunday that you can find on the tally room is I looked at over quite a long time period since the 1950s, what's the state two-party preferred and what's the national two-party preferred and what's the difference between them? Bearing in mind everything you said, Peter, about the limitations of two-party preferred, which is true. And it is interesting because you do see um, Victoria has had a long-term trend of becoming better for Labor, and New South Wales has had a long-term trend of getting worse. And then you have WA and Queensland in particular that have generally been pretty right-wing. One of the things I've noticed when I then compare those numbers to the state polling breakdowns, for whatever they're worth, which are not perfect, it suggests overall most states, maybe not New South Wales, which was already very close to the national average, but the other states are converging. Um, the polls now are suggesting Labor is going to pick up more of its more growth in Queensland and Western Australia. And if anything, they're not going to pick up very much in Victoria and South Australia. Uh, so maybe at the end of this election, uh, the states are all going to look a little bit closer to each other than they do now. I think it's too early to tell. <laughs> Let's wait till next this time next week because those aggregate state portions of of national polls are generally not not great before elections, so it's too early to tell. But I think the main thing, as you mentioned, Victoria has been spectacular in its. It used to be pretty well, you know, it could be said what kept Labor out of office, especially after the split of the 1950s. And since 1990, it's voted, given two-party preferred majorities to Labor, at I think every time except maybe two. I mean, even when Labor's lost, they've won two-party preferred majorities in Victoria. Someone pointed out to me when I showed them this data last night that you can see the state bank collapse in Victoria in 1990. Uh, Victoria voted very strongly for the Liberal Party in 1990 and then went straight back 
to their, uh, by 1996, had resumed their trend in the Labor direction. Um, anyway, I recommend for people to go and have a look at that uh, when you when you get a chance. So what, what really stood out to me, and I'm a Victorian, so I'm sort of used to this idea that, you know, the, it's this, the jewel in the Liberal crown and all of these things. But I think there's something to that, and I think I think it is that the the organisation in Victoria got bad. That you know the Liberal Party organisation it, it, it uh, tore itself apart. Uh, I think at the same time that the Liberal Party organisation in New South Wales has been a lot more successful. So when we talk about campaign effects, and you know we sort of bang on about um, about candidates and local swings and all of these local campaign effects, and Peter and I probably in our you know individual ways try to push back on those narratives generally but I think there's something that we haven't talked about much here and it is just the the competence of the party uh, and at the moment you know I don't know where the competence necessarily is I guess we'll you know we can rake over the coals next week and and decide who run the best campaign you know to circle back to that question from earlier or who had the better um, campaign headquarters but that's something that's a, a little bit sort of untouched and I wonder how much of that explains this swing towards uh, Labor in, in Victoria over time and towards uh, the Libs in, in New South Wales and how much of it is demographics. I just I can't come up with a demographic story to explain these. I find it interesting when you look at Victoria because at a state level, you know, Daniel Andrews has done very well um, for a while at least. He was pretty po- politically popular. Um there was a minority who had been very unhappy with him, but generally reasonably popular. But it does seem like the national polls are suggesting Labor has hit a bit of a ceiling in Victoria. Maybe their vote will go up, but that long-term trend is not going to continue this election in, in particular. I do find that interesting because I think ultimately other countries have much more dramatic differences in their politics between states than we do. Ours are very uniform, actually, compared to you look at countries like the US or Canada or even different regions in the UK. But it does look like, I hear what you're saying, Peter, but that sameness does appear to have kicked in in Victoria. We're not hearing that much about Labor picking up a swag of seats now to Melbourne like I thought they might have early on in the campaign. Well, how, how high can you go? I mean, uh, Labor got a swing to them in Victoria last time. I think maybe the only or one of the few places they did, and they're on 53% two-party preferred. So I think gravity kicks in somewhere. So... We can expect the swings to be better in all the other states pretty much than, than Victoria, but 53 is still a lot of support. I guess that's what I'm saying is uh, ultimately the if you if you look at it and go, is Labor going to pick up ground where they've already had a good trend or are they going to pick up ground where they haven't done that well? I think at the moment it looks like the latter is probably true. Well, Queensland has to. I mean, from a 42% two-party preferred I mean, if they don't make a big gain on that, then then that'll be indicative that they, that they haven't won the election. They have to get at least a four or five percent swing. I think they are going to gain ground in Queensland. I think one of the things I'm going to be most interested in watching is what happens in central Queensland because the LNP gained big swings in those seats last election, and um, Labor clearly has ambitions to win them back. But right now, you're not hearing very much about those seats, and um, I think probably. That swing in Queensland will be more concentrated in the suburban southeast. I think if Labor didn't think they could uh, pick up seats in, you know, sort of from the Sunshine Coast north, they wouldn't be talking about coal because it it does them too much damage elsewhere. 
uh, but the fact that they they do hold this kind of door open to new coal mines to uh, the coal industry generally uh, shows that they think these seats are in play. They probably have better information than you know than I do at this point. Uh, and you know, for better or worse, that they they seem to be able to tap into something there by talking about coal once you know once every three years. The way I see Queensland, especially the big swing last time, is that a, yes, it was concentrated in coal places, uh, Capricornia, the biggest swinger in the country. But there's also a Queensland us against the, the world uh, mentality that, that sort of grips the whole state. I sort of compared it to Tasmania in 1983 when Bob Hawke won. They, they suffered a massive backlash in Tasmania because of the dams issue. They didn't care because they won and they inadvertently triggered something like that in Queensland last time. I mean, I'm sure Capricornia will swing back, but not enough to go back to Labor. Well, implicit in this argument about Queensland is that there's something closer between, you know, the seat of Brisbane or the seat of of Dixon. um, And, you know, there's something that binds them with Capricornia that doesn't bind Brisbane and Sydney or Dixon and Grainler. And I'm, I'm just, I'm less sus on this. I just worry that those of us from the South, you know, look to the North and say, oh, they're all very strange up there. You know, there's something about Brisbaneans that's just a little bit different and, you know, we can't control for this in any kind of analysis. But I'm, I'm just not convinced of that. You know, I think they're just like us. And indeed, while um, there's all these indies wreaking havoc with Liberal seats in Sydney and Melbourne, there's no independence running seriously in those inner city Brisbane seats. But there is talk about Brisbane and Ryan flipping as well. So I think those same phenomena that are happening with those particular demographics in Sydney and Melbourne are also happening in Brisbane. I think both things can be true, that Brisbane has more in common with other capital cities than it does with the rest of Queensland, but it can still hold on to its Queensland identity quite strongly. And, uh, you know, you're trying to take away our, our, our resources that are going to make, you know, that this is where we get our income, you know, we're not going to let you do that sort of sort of thing. I guess the bigger question there is whether, you know, whether we think these state-based cleavages are more or less important than urban-rural cleavages. I got excited during COVID, you know, I'm happy to sort of admit that. I thought we might have seen state identity front and centre in this campaign. We haven't seen it. I mean, maybe there's some of it in Albanese's frequent trips to Perth. Um, You know, maybe he's trying to leverage some of that kind of WA pride, but for the most part, it's it's felt like a normal campaign, um, and we're not going to see the sort of Victorian, you know, New South Welsh, Queensland, whatever, uh, you know, sense of pride leveraged at all. So our final seat of the week this week is the outer suburban Brisbane electorate of Dixon. Senior Minister Peter Dutton has held Dixon since 2001 for the Liberal Party and the Liberal National Party, but he's never held the seat that comfortably. He narrowly held on in 2007 and now holds the seat by a 4.6% margin. Peter, you asked for us to feature this seat. Uh, What do you find so interesting about Dixon? Well, when I um, nominated this seat, it was a few weeks ago, and I thought it might be more in play, possibly, well, we'll see what happens on on Saturday. Dixon, I suppose what I find interesting is that Peter Dutton's done badly in Dixon at the last two elections. Uh, this was perhaps masked in 2019 by a swing to him, but it was one of the lowest swings to the LNP in Queensland. And this was on the back of a bad result in 2016. And on both occasions, there were 
what you have to say is good candidates for Labor. One was Linda Lovarch. It was in 2016 and she had a you know, high profile in Queensland. And then Ali France in 2019 and she did well, I believe, swing-wise in Dixon. And she's running again in 2022. And if the swing is on in Queensland, then, you know, Dutton could be or will be in, in trouble. One obvious fact that's that's become evident in the last few weeks is that Ali France has nothing like the the, the profile that she did three years ago, last time she was all over the news, it seemed to me from memory, assisted by Dutton confusing his audience with the Sky After Dark audience and, and uh, criticising her for you know, saying she was taking advantage of her disability or, or something. Um, but there's been, she's, she barely gets a mention this time. And so, you know, maybe those two results were one-offs. Those of us with longish memories will remember that the seat became notional after a redistribution in 2009, I think, 2008. The, the seat became notional Labor and Peter tried to move to another seat, uh, but he was knocked back and so he had to go back. But since then, Queensland has been strongly LNP. And so that, that notional uh, Labor status was based on the 2007 results, which were a very unusual statewide two-party preferred for Labor. So I suppose what I'm saying is I don't find it Dixon as exciting as I did a few weeks ago, basically because uh, the, the polling doesn't really have it in play. But but let's see on Saturday. I'm also going to quickly, uh, a quick mention for Eden Monero, which no one talks about as a possible Liberal gain, but uh, Mike Kelly only won it by a small amount in 2019, he's gone. Uh, Labor just won it at the by-election in 2020. Christine McBain, if she can build up a good personal vote, will will hold it, I suppose. But uh, Mike Kelly had a, had a very, very high personal vote and it masked a, a couple of redistributions that moved it towards the Liberal Party really over the last 10 or 15 years. And this is the first time he hasn't been the Labor candidate since 2004. I assume it's not getting mentioned because party polling shows it's safe Labor, but that'll be my my dark horse for uh, a surprise Liberal win. If, if New South Wales doesn't perform well for Labor, then that could go Liberal. I would say one thing about Dixon, that it's not necessarily a bad thing for Labor that the seat no longer has that big national focus. I think it got a lot of attention, you know, groups like Get Up and stuff put a lot of effort into that seat and made Dutton the centre of attention. I don't think it was actually good for him in the sense that he did get a smaller swing towards him than in a lot of other uh, kind of similar outer suburban southeast Queensland electorates. Um, but I do think it's possible that uh, she might be helped by just sort of being a bit under the radar, chugging away, and then there's just a big swing in Queensland, and particularly in the southeast, it kind of sweeps all aside, and it's not really about Peter Dutton at all. It's just another uh, outer suburban marginal in a state with a big swing. Um, and I think probably if he loses his seat, that'll be the story. Won't really have that much to do with him. Unlike Frydenberg, for example, in Kuyong, where, well, maybe that's not about Frydenberg particularly either. That's, again, a little bit about that that seat's changed in a particular direction. But um, That's more about Morrison, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, I think that those teal seats, particularly in Victoria, are, are just 
deeply about the state of the Liberal Party in 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 Victoria, but um, particularly, but but nationally too, and their its ability to um, find a safe home for moderates. I think you're bang on though, Ben, about um, about Dutton and and campaigns like Get Up, who. You know, I think there's a sort of naive sense that if only we knew what what Dutton was like, we'd all turn against him. But people know Dutton. Salience isn't a problem, right? You know, nationally as well as, you know, even more so inside his seat of Dixon, people know who he is. They like him or they don't like him. And adding awareness or salience to his profile isn't going to change that. You know, if anything, it will just reinforce the haters and the lovers. Um, But it probably won't swing votes. Uh, within the seat, and certainly that's been the evidence, you know, post hoc. I think you could be right that quieter campaign benefits Dutton, but I also think that, you know, the Palaszczuk government being probably a little bit on the nose after two years of COVID as a lot of the state governments, so, you know, is starting to lose some love, will probably benefit him as well. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thank you, Peter and Jill, for joining me. Thanks, Peter. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Jill. And thanks, Jill. Thanks, guys. On Saturday night, you can find me covering the results on the Guardian's live blog, and I will also drop some comments in occasionally at the Tally Room, and then I'll be back at the Tally Room on Sunday with some deeper analysis. Peter and Jill, are either of you doing anything around the last week of the election? Nothing out of the ordinary for me. I'll be on uh, ABC Radio nationwide. Basically, if you put on an ABC channel apart from uh, Triple J, you'll be stuck with me. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Christopher for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening. <laughs>